0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown The Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey,
1: it's true. Welcome in. It is Downtown The Podcast, all right. Episode number 135. Rich Kimball here along with Kerry Haskell, and we're brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two good conversations for you on tap this week. Second half of the program, we feature a musician, singer, the talented Matthew Nelson. 30 years ago, he and his twin brother Gunner, with their flowing blonde locks, burst onto the music scene with the number one album, After the Fire, number one single, Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection, and in so doing, made history as the first family to have number one songs in three generations. Matthew and Gunnar, the sons of the late Ricky Nelson, and their grandparents on Dad's side, of course, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson. Matthew's still making music and a great conversation about uh, he and his brother, the legacy of their dad, and much more. Coming up in the second half of the program this week. Here in the first half, a comedy legend joins us. guy who appeared many, many times on the Ed Sullivan Show. Ed, one of the guys who made his career possible. Great friends with Steve Allen. Multiple appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. TV series like Soap. uh, His own shows like Comedy on the Road and Bazaar. Talented actor, comedian, and for my money, the best impressionist of the last several decades. uh, The great John Biner, who joined us to talk about his career and his new book, Five Minutes, Mr. Biner. The book is just delightful it's uh well as you point out it's not a tell-all it's a very positive look back at your career
2: yeah that's for sure i got lots to tell all but i, do not, <laughs> I don't <laughs> bother anybody with that
1: well you uh you tell the story of your childhood and uh, your family moved an awful lot what was it that ability to make people laugh uh, that helped you make it easier to be accepted in new surroundings
2: yes absolutely Absolutely, the the family, as I say in the book, is 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 fun. My father was funny, and mom was funny, and my sisters and brothers are funny, and all that. And uh, and and it was just one of those things. I was able to do these voices and uh, and uh, break that wall that you always have when you move into when you get a, into a school that's already in in progress, and all the kids know each other for years already, and you know it's kind of tough. But with the voices, it made it a lot easier.
1: Well, it was your impression of JFK that really opened some doors for you. Uh and well, Maine's own Von Meter, who became quite famous for his Kennedy impression, the first family album was in the audience when you you did that in competition. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, we became friends and uh and and he came over to me after the the whole thing was over that night. And he said, "Hey, you were pretty good and I don't say that about everybody." <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes. Ed Sullivan certainly played a, a key role in your life, not only a mentor, but a friend. And, and I don't want to give away too much from the book, because we want people to read the book, by the way, called Five Minutes, Mr. Biner. But, but can you share perhaps the, the whistling story?
2: Okay, certainly. <laughs> you get right down to the crux, as they say. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I was new in the business. About, I was about six months into the business, really, have a card-carrying comedian. Having done a, a few Sullivan shows, and uh, and he invited me and several other acts to go out with uh, with him uh, to uh, Lake Tahoe, and um, in Nevada, and uh, and and do a, a two week show with him, uh, and you know the the trampoline artist and the the uh, singing sisters and this that and the other thing, and um, and so I didn't know about the taboos and what you couldn't couldn't do and the uh, superstitions that people had in show business. And you know, like some people say, you can't put a hat on the bed, and or a table, or that kind of thing. Well, I, I'm in my dressing room one afternoon, right across the hall, from his in Lake Tahoe at the Harris Club, and uh, and uh, and I'm shining my shoes to get ready for that evening. I had nothing else to do, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I'm whistling, and uh, and I hear from across the way. I re- I didn't realize he was in, but his door was open to his dressing room. And mine also, and uh, and I hear from across the way, "Who's that whistling over there?" I didn't know that it was taboo to whistle in the <laughs> dressing room. That's a big deal, a big deal, and uh, and and then and, and I can hear his uh, his manager saying, "Oh, it's Ed, uh, it's it's Biner, Ed." And 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 then there's a, long, a pause, a long pause, and then his Biner, didn't you know? It's not. It's don't don't you know? It's it's not, it's, it's, it's not good, it's bad to, to whistle, it's bad uh, luck to whistle in the dressing room. And I said, I'm oh, sorry, or I didn't say anything, I'm not sure. And then another pause, a long pause, and he said, one more peep out of you and I'll come over there and string you up by your red
1: balls. <laughs> uh, well, he, he liked your impression of him. What was the key to doing a good Sullivan impression?
2: Well, it just uh, my mine was no. Will Jordan was the first one I ever see do it, and and I just had fun with it. I didn't I didn't try to look at. It. I didn't put my shoulders up against my ears and and you know hunch down and all that kind of stuff. And look, as Will did, he got he got his hair slicked back. He did a whole thing, and uh, and and I just like to have fun with it. You know, I just and using his attitudes and that kind of thing and. And I you was know, surprising him with some of the things that he didn't realize he did.
1: <laughs> uh, what role did Merv Griffin play in your career?
2: Merv Griffin had a show called, um, uh, 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 <laughs> it's It's uh, one of those talent shows, you know, the Merv Griffin Talent Scouts. Talent Scout Show. Arthur Godfrey had one for years, Talent Scout Show, where people would come on and they'd claim to have, discovered somebody in a nightclub or something like that and here he is you know that kind of thing well i was i was uh, a friend of of uh, a guy named uh, Dean kalkin you know high school and his father knew some people in the newspaper business and and uh and the producer of the uh, uh Merv Griffin talent scout show and and i drove in with him one night uh early in my my life <laughs> and uh and and i uh and i auditioned in Irving Mansfield's office he was the producer of the show and i became the person that the show discovered and i did uh, some uh, little impressions that i did uh i kicked around in, in my life and uh, made my family and friends and and navy buddies uh, uh laugh at and uh, i got to do the show and uh, and it was a big hit and uh, and there was a uh a big, uh, I think it was the New York Post who had a um, you know, one of those uh, columns that uh, he'd talk about show business and people, and he said, "Finally, talent with the uh, scouts." You know, <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote about me, and, and and I thought that was really nice. And it was a big a big boost. Yeah,
1: we're talking with John Biner here on downtown. His book is Five Minutes, Mr. Biner, written along with uh, Douglas Wellman. I-, I love the stories in the book about your time with Harry James. What did you learn about the business in touring with them?
2: Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, here I am, <laughs> just a few months in the business and uh, you know, just an innocent kind of guy. <laughs> and I'm thrown on the bus with these old-time musicians and a few a few guys that were, uh, were, were around my age, a little older than me, you know, horn players, but most of the guys had been in the business for a long time, you know, Corky Cochran the saxophone player, and uh, and uh, and different people that uh, uh, Buddy Rich and, and and you know you're driving along with these guys in the bus day and night, night and day, and and running in doing a hotel one night, running getting your clothes done whatever, and uh, and eating in restaurants with them along the way and all that stuff and and I got I got educated real fast.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I got, I got educated real fast.
1: You had a great friendship with one of my favorite entertainers of all time, and I don't think he gets enough credit when we talk about the history of late-night television in particular, but Steve Allen was was oh such God. an original and, and such an amazing talent.
2: Steve Allen was amazing, exactly. He was so talented and so nice and, and intelligent and all the things that you Like in a guy, and uh, and we became very good friends. He is a terrific fan of mine. In fact, I'd hear him quoting me on talk shows and stuff. And uh, he'd say, "Oh, yeah, but John Biner said," and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and and sometimes my wife and I'd go out to L.A. after we'd left the uh, the big city, and uh, and we'd stay with them. And they were terrific, Uh, Janie Bird and you know Jane Meadows and Mm. Steve. Yeah. Terrific guy.
1: You also became friends with one of your heroes, James Cagney, who you invited, invited over to his house on more than one occasion.
2: Yes, it was, uh, it, was, it was Roger Miller, my friend, my good friend Roger Miller.
1: Roger Miller, who we love because he made our city famous uh, in well, King of the Road, uh, the, Destination we were, Bangor, we were, Maine.
2: We were very close people. We, we were very friendly. And, and, uh, and I was in his backyard one afternoon, having been in his neighborhood, I stopped by to say hello. And he said, "Hey, manor, guess where we're guess where we're going tonight?" His wife, Marian, so <laughs> And I said, no, "Where's that?" He says, "We're going James Cagney's house." You know, he'd, he'd swallow things. We're going to James Cagney's house. And I said, "Well, boy, what I would just say, gin passing, what I wouldn't do to live, see James, meet James. Oh my gosh, you know." And as a kid, I saw the movies, and you know, James Cagney, the big hero, and Yankee Doodle Dandy, and the whole thing, and the tough guy in the movies, and. And so uh, you know I, that's all I said, and and I thanked them for their beer, whatever we had that afternoon, and I left, and and um, I'm at home, and I'm, I'm on the beach, living on the beach with my kids, and in a house, and and uh, I'm downstairs, and they're upstairs having a little argument about some little thing. The dog is barking at them and the Somebody's got the wrong shirt, or whatever. <laughs> they're just looking at you. Know. And the phone rings, and one of them picks it up, and he, and the next thing I know. The one that picked it up, Rosine, is leaning over. She's about seven, eight years old. Lean over the little balcony there, we were upstairs. And she said, Dad, James Cagney's on the phone. <laughs> you know, it's not so <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I shut everything down, and I grabbed the phone. and, Hello? Hi, O, It's me, Jimmy. Jimmy Cagney. We're having a smoke over here.
1: Just you, me, and the boys. What do you say? Come on over.
2: And that was that was the beginning of my friendship with James Cagney.
1: And you ended up doing Yankee Doodle Dandy for him.
2: Yeah, with Joe. <laughs> yeah, he had several people over that night, and uh, Roy Clark was one of them, as I remember. And uh, and uh, Donald O'Connor came over to me. Oh, one, one, one point, uh, Jimmy he was about eighty, and he had he had a little uh, cane, and he leaned on his cane, and he's looking over at me. His chin is on the on his hand, and his hand is on the cane, and he's sitting there and said, Jono, do you do Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> 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 and I said, everybody does Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and at that time, John- Donald came over and said, hey, let's do a little Yankee doodle for the old man. You know, so we did.
1: That's fantastic. So we had good fun. Uh, you were on the Johnny Carson show uh, so many times. But I, I was fascinated by the story of uh, you going into his dressing room at one point and, and coming to the re- realization that you both had something in common in that you were inherently shy people.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he would never know how, what to say to me. So he'd, one of the things he used to crack him up was uh, my impersonation of Jessel, George Jessel, who used to do the show. <laughs> Many years before I did it, and 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 we, were <laughs> and I pointed out some of the things that Jessel did, and oh, you Johnny laugh so hard, I just knew that oh, that's all I'd have to do is a couple of words with Jessel, and he'd be on the floor. You know, so so he he would he would come into the uh, makeup room and uh, had little uh, liver spots on his hand of telling him little secrets. But anyway, he had these, and he always had the girl do his hands because he'd forget to do it up in his, his dressing room. And, uh, and 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 he he he'd see me sitting there, and, I, and he'd look in the mirror at me, and I'd look back at him through the mirror, and, and he'd make this 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 thing that Jessel always used to do with his lips, like like he just got through eating. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I used to say, you know, like that, and, 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 and that's the way, that's the way he'd greet me, doing that with his lips.
1: <laughs> and, and you tell the story of a memorable Tonight Show uh, with. Rosemary and and friend of our show, the late Carl Reiner.
2: Oh yeah, no, that's a, <laughs> that's that's a show that I think they should read about. I mean, that's a, that's a story. Oh yeah, yes,
1: yeah. save that one for the book, which by the way is but called I Five it. Minutes, Mister.
2: By bringing it up because that's one of my favorite. Where the heck did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> uh, In my life.
1: I was a huge fan of the John Biner Comedy Hour, and uh, I didn't know until reading the book. What a talented group of writers you had—an amazing crew.
2: Oh my gosh, yes! And they went off to become uh, terrific in their own right, in their own world. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 one of them, Rudy Deluca, one of the writers, Rudy Deluca, became uh, uh, a, a writer with uh, Mel Brooks, and and uh, and he was fascinated with the with uh, uh, you know the uh, Frankenstein thing, and, uh, and he wrote a thing called Transylvania Six Five Thousand. And invited me to do the movie with uh, a lot of great people.
1: Yeah. And then the Five, five Seasons that. of Bizarre, which was oh, such a terrific show. Oh, uh, that was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I love that show. And and I love uh, reading the stories about uh, not only working with, but your friendship with, with another comedy great, uh, the late Bob Einstein, Super Dave.
2: Super Dave. Yeah, Bob Einstein. Ooh, I, I never did Bob for Bob, but. <laughs> <laughs> But I do it from everybody else. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bob was terrific. I really loved him. He
1: was terrific. You also had a chance to be a part of what I think is one of the best ensembles in the history of television, uh, that great cast of Soap.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And and what an honor it was to be part of it. I, uh I showed up and I didn't know <laughs> because I'd traveled around doing a lot of clubs and this and that, and I never had a chance to catch the show. And I didn't know uh, I, I didn't, hadn't met any of the actors, and uh, in, in, including Billy Crystal, who did a lot of stand up, but I never did run into him. And and uh, and I I I went there the first day, and I I I didn't know anybody. I was in, introduced to everybody, and, uh, uh, and and then I when when they opened the book. And I read who I was supposed to be talking to. I didn't know who to look at. Because I didn't know who that person was in the script. And it was kind of interesting for the first couple of weeks. And uh, pulled it together, and I did 17 uh,
1: shows. Uh, can you talk about the approach of, uh, of Richard Mulligan, who who was definitely a serious actor?
2: But, yeah, yeah, that, he fascinated me. He fascinated me. And that we'd open the book on Monday morning. The, I call it the book, but it's the, it's the script. We'd open the book on Monday morning, and we'd read, and we'd read our parts, and we'd read, you know, as best we could, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and everybody would be sitting around, the makeup people and the the, uh, the the set people and everybody, sitting around these two tables that were pushed together, and the rest of them moment scattered around the room in different chairs. And uh and, and, and when we'd closed we'd close the book after it was at the last page. We'd close the book and it would be time for everybody to get up and have a cup of coffee before we, as they say, put it on its feet, which means you hold the book and you say your thing and then tell you where to stand and what do you as you do it? So so everybody goes for coffee except the Richard Mulligan. He's got the book open and he's pacing back and forth and he's he's doing all <laughs> those things that he talked talking talk and you all that stuff. <laughs> it was fascinating. Because he just worked on that constantly and it was great.
1: Uh you've done so much voiceover work through the years, but uh, uh my first introduction to you as a voiceover performer was in the amazing Ant and the Aardvark, which I, it was work, obviously, but you were having so much fun with that, and it came through.
2: Well, you know, it wasn't really work. I mean, first of all, when you, you're doing voiceover work, you can show up in a sweatshirt, jeans, <laughs> no makeup, none of that stuff. You just sit there behind this glass, and the guy's in the booth, and he's going, oh, this time, speak a little louder to the butterfly when you come in. <laughs> and, uh, and so I... Uh, I, I show up at, at uh, the patty Freeling and fritz freeling's office, and they they were the producers of the Anthony Artwork and several other cartoons and This was a cartoon that was shown in motion picture theaters right. you know, in, in theaters and shown between as you and uh, years ago they used to do that all the time and um and so uh before it got to television, then they played it on television but um I'm in Fritz Freeling's office and, and he had seen me do a lot of voices on the Sullivan Show, since you'd mentioned it. That was the show he saw me on. And uh, and he said, uh, I've got some characters. I'm looking for voices for them. And so I said, okay, uh, what kind of... First, he says, they started telling me about it. Then he said, no, I... wait, I'll show you a picture. Show you... He does... He shows me this uh, painting <clears throat> of, of the aardvark. And, and he said, no, the aardvark is Tell you about it. his character. He's very certain, very serious, very very nervous. Very, serious. he's he's always out to get get to get the end. Always out to get the end. He's he's very. He tries all kinds of things, and so he says he's very nervous. And the first thing that popped in my mind was Jackie Mason. You know, <laughs> Jackie Mason's talking all this time. He said, you know what I am talking about, Mister? You know, he's talking. It's a big deal. So I think Jackie Mason. So he says. So I said. He said, You know, that's 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 great. That's perfect. And you, and I said, okay. Lucky first first one I throw at him, and he likes it, you know. So that's fine. He puts that down. He says, now the ant, and he picks up the ant, and he says, now the ant is a lackadaisical kind of guy. He's, in he'd rather not do anything And you know. So I said, lackadaisical, that's kind of like Dean Martin, you know. He has, he used to be walked across the stage by the beautiful dancers, to show him where to stop, you know, where the mark was. Okay, they'd stop. He wouldn't look for it. They'd just bring him and stop him, and that was where he stood. And, um uh, and that was Dean Martin. I said, how about this for the act? You know, I think I'll just sit around here. He said, that, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so now to Patty Freeling, he said, that's good. Next thing I know, they've they've called Dean Martin and they've called Jackie Mason. they got permission to do it. And uh, we're on our way.
1: Uh, also, a wonderful series that you hosted for a number of seasons, Comedy on the Road, was such a oh, yeah. a, a unique show, a chance Four to years, see some yeah. talented comics. And, and I love, and you talk about it in the book a little bit, uh, you talk about the openings uh, were so unique and original. It was just a terrific show. Well,
2: thank you very much. And we had a lot of fun doing it, and that's where I met Doug Wellman. <laughs> and we traveled a lot together in uh, different towns across the country. You know, On the Road really was. We were really on the road. And uh, and I tell him these stories, and one day he said to me, hey, if you ever want to write a book, and that stuck in my head. And and so I decided one day, what the heck? So I called him, and there we go. Yeah, and, uh, and I met a lot of wonderful comics and people along the way in that show, and uh, I had a good time doing it.
1: Oh, i have to bring up a, a series that I enjoyed. It didn't have a long run, but to the practice with Danny Thomas and and friend of our show Shelley Fabre, part of that cast as well.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Shelly's a lovely girl, and uh, and uh, yeah, that was a fun uh, fun experience. <laughs> I talk about I talk about Danny asking me to walk him
1: out to his car. Oh, I love that story. Save that. Read the book for that story because it's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now there's another story.
2: Singing with the band.
1: Oh, there's a, <laughs> there's a great story in the book, and I don't know. Maybe you can tease it a little bit, but uh, I love the story about your daughter Sandy and Elvis.
2: Oh, <laughs> I was working with. I had I had seen Elvis, and we'd wave to each other, and we had little you know, in the hallway kind of hellos, but you know, we never really got to know each other. And uh and uh I was working with Glenn Campbell uh at the uh at the Hilton Hotel. The Hilton it was the Hilton International <laughs> that's where Elvis worked. And I was working with Glenn Campbell and uh and I got through I got through with my opening for Glenn and I and I got my my kids together. It was Sandy's tenth birthday, uh and, and I had taken them to Vegas with me and uh I was raising them on my own at the time and um in fact, they always did, <laughs> but, uh, but but anyway, they they uh, I brought them with me, and 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 uh, after uh, I collected them, and we were able to go up into the balcony because it was Sandy's birthday, and they didn't want you know kids yelling out in the middle of the show or something. So, but my kids didn't yell out any. Anyway, they you know what I mean. If they had young kids, come mm-hmm. on, I want ice game, in the middle of somebody's stand-up. You know, it's not good. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, uh. Uh, we're we're upstairs now and, and Glenn comes out and, and uh and he introduces uh, Elvis in the audience and and we look down, we were sitting just, you know, you can look down the brass rail there and look downstairs. Down and and there he is right under us and and uh and, and the show goes on, everything's fine. Audience applauds and everything's great and we go back, we sit back and, and I look over one time and there's no no Sandy in the seat. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Where's Sandy? and my son Don goes Look down, look down. And she's standing there talking to him. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, and his guys and had you know, uh, like uh, Medzi Med, uh, uh, half moon uh, seating, you know, the, the, the booth. They had these at the booth and his guys were sitting on one end of them and he was there <laughs> at the end. And she was sitting on his lap. The next day, <laughs> so the show ends, and I go upstairs, and and I I, I get the kids uh, into you know, and and, the, and I go back and to get Sandy, and and as I'm I'm going back, I run into Elvis, and and he tells me she's a real nice kid and all that kind of stuff, and and uh, and it's it, what happens. It wasn't that. <laughs> it didn't start out like she's a real nice kid, but you'll read about that and. She had had a picture taken with him and gone upstairs by the time I got back. You know, a lot of elevators and the crowds and all that kind of stuff.
1: We'll we'll just tease it by saying that uh, the king turned the tables on you a little bit.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, (laughs) yes, yes. When I ran into him uh, backstage uh, in the kitchen, in fact, it was. (laughs) You had to go through the kitchen to get to the elevators. You know, show business is different than the outside (laughs) world. And uh, ran into Elvis and his entourage and... uh, and uh and I had made a remark about him in my act that he'd caught earlier in his life in another uh room. I was working with Diana Ross and uh and I I used to say I used to say, You see he paces the stage like a caged animal <laughs> 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 And and I met him at the door and he says like a staged animal, huh, Joan? And some uh, guys will look to me with no smiles on their faces. <laughs> and I said, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and they just left without saying a word, and then, then he took about eight or ten steps and said, hey, Joan. I turned around and he said, I met your daughter, Sandy. She's real nice. And they all laughed, and I, and I realized he would put me on <laughs> So there's the story, almost. I love it. All right?
1: What was, uh, what was your experience like working with Nathan Lane on Broadway in The Frogs?
2: Oh, Nathan. God almighty. He's amazing. Um, I mean, the man has so many plays in his skull. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, long speeches and things. He's just amazing. Well, the thing that really really was a big deal for me, not, not only to meet Nathan Lane, who, was, who calls himself Mr. Broadway, and he is. Um, uh, but I, I'd, I'd always seen a lot of Broadway shows in the movies years that you, you know, you get Broadway rhythm and all that Broadway stuff in the backstage and, you know, the stage door Johnny and all this stuff that was thrown at you as you're growing up in these different shows and movies. So I always wondered what it was like and, uh, through my career in the business and, uh, and I got an opportunity and, uh, I met, uh, Nathan Lane and Susan Stroman and, and uh, I was in uh, a thing that was an adaptation, uh, and it was called *The Frogs*. And uh, and I was uh, I was Karen, and I'd come down. I was come down a long white beard and white long white hair, and uh, look a little like Leon Russell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'd I'd come down thirty-five feet from a little skiff, <laughs> all chained. <laughs> James, James Radley, and sing a song that, that Stephen Sunheim had written for my character after he had met me and watched me do my character for about two or three years in re- uh, weeks in rehearsal. And he wrote this song one afternoon. I get a tap on the shoulder from Susan Stroman at rehearsal. and said, somebody wants to see you next door. <laughs> and I walk in, I go, Oh, Mr. Sunheim, And he goes, Steve. <laughs> and it was just Steve sitting at the piano, uh, grand piano. And he said, no, just let me hear it. I want to know where your range is and stuff. So he played some chords, and I did some... <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I've got the song written for me.
1: Well, and you you do so many great impressions of, of singers. And, of course, you worked with, with musicians all throughout your career. One of my favorite singers I know he's one of your best friends. Could you could you indulge us and maybe do a little Johnny Mathis well, just let me tell you,
2: <laughs> it's not for me to say, you
1: love me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you also worked with a, a friend of ours who comes on the show uh, quite often. Now he's a neighbor of ours living down in New Hampshire, John Davidson.
2: Oh, John Davidson. Yeah. Yeah. We did some nice things together in different times in our lives. We we worked at Harris Club around the same time together and, and uh and and uh, we did a big thing well, i was a big there was a big uh thing for playboy uh the playboy bunny of the year i think it was a big a big deal with uh, with hefner and all these people and and uh and john davidson and i uh starred in the show and uh and we had a great time and i and one thing i uh, <laughs> there was there was a break in the show There's that's a little story because of one of my favorite people, Groucho uh, Marx, was there. And he was sitting in the audience, and, and I had met him t- before that. I had met him at the, uh, the uh, Friars Club. And uh, and, and I, had, I had seen him standing there uh, by himself. Uh, uh, there was a, a break in the show, you know, an uh, intermission in the show that we were there to see. And he young in the business. And I walked over and said, uh, Mr. Marks, you don't know me, but I think you're terrific. He's, he said, uh, oh, I know who you, I know you, What I don't know is why someone who looks like you do does what you do. He <laughs> said, now think about that. That's a triple compliment. <laughs> 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 so I told that story at the, at the Davidson's, at the big thing that we were doing for Hefner. And uh, in the, there was a break in the, in the equipment. They asked me to go out there and, and entertain a little bit, and I saw him. And he was in his—he uh, was in his, uh, you know, the uh, beret period. He had a beret, <laughs> <laughs> and he was with Connie Stevens, who was a longtime friend of mine. She, he was escorting her, or, or vice versa—I don't know. And they were sitting there in the front row, and I told that story about meeting him and what he had said to me. And uh, not expecting it, but after the show I'm in my dressing room putting my stuff in the bag as you're done, you know, you're all through with this, that, and you know, other thing. There's a knock on the door. I open it and it's Groucho. <laughs> and he takes the cigar out of his mouth and he looks at me and he says, If you were a girl, I'd marry you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the book is called Five Minutes, Mr. Binder, uh, written along with Doug Wellman and it is Full of, of great stories, wonderful characters, and, and I, I guess I was most impressed, John, with the fact that it was also filled with a great deal of gratitude for the life that you've been able to live for uh, oh, all these yeah. years. Oh
2: I yeah, mean, it's just the falling into place, you know, things, one thing falls into the other, and one door opens, and another one closes, and all that kind of stuff, and all the people are friends, and that I've met along the way, and uh, it's
1: fantastic.
2: It's a wonderful life, and it just can—it continues to be so.
1: John, that's wonderful. I thank you so much. I, I love the book and have been a big fan of your work for many, many years. Appreciate you carving out some time for us today.
2: Hey, anytime, Rich. Yeah, it's been fun talking to you, and you asked some really good questions.
1: Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed your appearance uh, with our friend Gilbert Godfrey too. That was great. Oh. <laughs>
0: You know, you used to do a thing that I really liked a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, be well, stay safe, and hopefully we'll catch you again down the road. And all the same back at you, Rich. Oh, John Biner, man. What did we, what did we count Kerry? About a, a dozen, maybe more impressions in that conversation? Yeah, it was, I think, a <laughs> solid dozen uh, impressions he worked into that uh, that little chat. He can do them all. Very interesting guy. And the book is wonderful. And, and you know, this has happened a few times lately where we've had uh, folks on who'd written a memoir and who chose purposely to make it very positive, not to be a not to be a tell-all, not to give you the sordid stories, but just to look back at their career and the people they've worked with. And uh, I, I found it to be a very enjoyable, funny book uh, with some great stories and, and good to catch up with John Biner. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance We'll talk music, Matthew Nelson of the band Nelson next.
0: Strength.
1: from the number one album in the country the debut album from matthew and gunner nelson after the rain produced a number of hit singles and again made them the first three generation family to have number one songs on the billboard charts their dad ricky nelson of course and grandparents ozzy and harriet very very talented family uh, matthew and gunner still making music today we had a chance to talk with one half of the duo matthew nelson about the band the family and the musical legacy of his father ricky it's good to have on a bass player who can sing i know you're a fan of those guys too and recently we talked with uh, somebody who i know is one of your role models chris hillman of the birds
0: he sure is one of my heroes absolutely so you know chris hillman uh let me see randy meisner was right in the same ballpark as as chris uh, um of course paul mccartney sing you know i'm a big fan of singing bass players
1: And I was reading that you and your brother essentially grew up as your own rhythm section.
0: That's entirely true. Gunner was a drummer for about 18 years, and it was a real good drummer um, until kind of had one of those uh, 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 epiphanies that it would just be a whole lot better if he came up front and sang with me. Uh, He even took it a step further. With our band Nelson years ago, it just kind of became really apparent that after years of my fronting the band while he played drums and sang from back there, that he had a really interesting and really good uh, middle range in his voice. I tended to sing lower, and I could do those kind of Randy Meisner tenor notes as a harmony singer. So we kind of created our sound that way, and kind of flipped roles. You know, I kind of became more of a, a co-lead singer slash harmony guy, and it's uh, really worked out for us.
1: For people who don't know the backstory, it might seem like uh, you guys came out of nowhere in 1990 with After the Rain, but it was uh, one of those, well, like most overnight sensations, it was years in the making.
0: It's really true. We we had a very interesting ride and a lot of false starts, as, as most people do, that are really committed to it. And we we're very fortunate that we had music around with our dad's bands and stuff like that, and, and music was all around At least we knew it was possible, but... We started playing together, I think we we're six and seven years old, respectively. I started on the bass around seven, and Gunner started on drums before that. And we were kind of a natural rhythm section and stuck with it. You know, so like a lot of kids get into things and kind of quit, we almost looked at it like we were, you know, athletes trying to work to get to the Super Bowl or something as football players. We, we, we knew we were going to get a shot and had to be ready and started playing clubs when we were very young. We were about 12, 13 years old playing in nightclubs in LA and started writing our own tunes back then. And uh, as I said, we had a lot of false starts. You know, we, we, we tried uh, with different demos, different managers, different styles, different band names, the whole thing. You know, a lot of, you know, every failure is is closer to success. And we were fortunate in that uh, after our father passed away, and some, you know, kind of big shots, like playing on Saturday Night Live or whatever, we kind of scrapped everything, got our minds together, and learned how to write hit songs. And I think that was the greatest advice we ever got. Came from a not only our dad saying, you know, write your own tunes, but a producer that worked with him, a guy named John Boylan, mm. who very famous, kind of Laurel Canyon sound kind of guy that uh, produced our dad and uh, Linda Ronstadt. Put the you know Linda's band together was you know, basically the Eagles, and he kind of sat us down and said, guys, it it really comes down to whether or not you have a hit song, and if you don't have it, since nobody's going to give it to you, you're starting artist. You got to write it. And you need to collaborate, and that's what we did. We spent years doing that, and uh, traveled all over the world actually to, to write with people and, and learn the skill. And I think we really hit pay dirt with our song "Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection." You know, after you know, demo after demo after demo, it just we knew that we had we had the song, and that's the one actually just playing it with two acoustic guitars uh, in front of John Bonner at Geffen, who had kind of put us on ice and gave us a very minimum development deal. You know, like you know, two hundred dollars. <laughs> for recording to uh to, to give him demos i remember he heard that that one day and he said well that's what i've been waiting to hear i you guys are the new hollies and that was his whole thing he, he saw us as the as a new version of the hollies which is not far off actually just with twin harmonies and we developed that into you know kind of a heavier version of that but that's really where how we how we broke
1: is the story true that you guys actually went back and recut love and affection you weren't happy with the way it sounded
0: we actually cut – we wound up cutting Love and Affection uh, after that initial demo, I think, three different times. Uh, one was with a pair of producers that just really dropped the ball, like completely. Spent $100,000 of record company money and got no results at all and then blamed it on us. So we, we got dropped actually for two days from our label deal, negotiated to go back in with our – co-writer mark tanner and uh, engineer of their choice which was a man named david thoner he'd done a great job for a song called missing you for john waite and uh we went and recorded it at cherokee studios the whole album uh on a rare you know fairly limited budget and we just didn't nail it it just didn't work and it was a real shame because we knew inherently it was something special and gunner and i chose to uh make a couple of phone calls. There's a man that we worked with that had done a song with us for the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure film, the original one, called Two Heads Are Better Than One. His name was David Holman. He had worked with Olivia Newton-John as an engineer, and he had a real ability. He was a real talent. But he hadn't really done anything big. And so Kalodner and the record company said, well, you know, give it a shot if you want to. And we wound up basically recutting 90% of what we had done before Uh, So it was basically a whole new song with a different mix and a different approach to it. And it uh, definitely, we said we really wanted to compete not with the rock stuff that was happening, but the pop stuff that was happening, because that's really where the exposure was. And I think we did a a really good job kind of coming out with with a very fresh sound for that era. And very vocal, very poppy, uh, not blues-oriented, really. It was very California-sounding. And uh, he went on to, David Holman wound on to produce a band called No Doubt, and their breakout hit Just a Girl and uh, a band called Bush after us. So we were kind of like a little launch pad for Mm -hmm. his production career, which made me feel good.
1: We're talking with Matthew Nelson here on Downtown. Did the Nelson name open more doors or create more obstacles for you?
0: Uh, Both. I think, realistically speaking, uh, you know, I remember with, according record companies, I mean, we got turned down by everybody like everybody does, you know, two, three times. But Gunner and I, when we really focused on, uh, when we were ready, we focused on the Geffen label. Uh, David Geffen was running it at the time. He hadn't sold the company yet. And I had heard uh, from John Boylan, from our producer, that, you know, David Geffen knew my dad and and stuff. And I'll never forget, in the very first meeting, we were there, just playing a couple of demos for his A&R guy, John Kolodner. And David Geffen comes right through the door, sits down, and goes, "How's your mother?" I was <laughs> like, uh, "She's doing okay, thanks." It's like yeah, I used to hang out with them; they're really nice people. Okay, I'll see you later, and that was it. And so, if that is something, but you know, we we still worked two more years after that meeting to just get the nod and even getting a, a small deal. Um, but I will say this: uh, you know, people that wrote articles knew about our family and the legacy. The kids, the millions of kids that bought our music didn't. They had no idea. They could care less. So that's my favorite part of it. It's like weird. We, Gunner and I had to sell millions of records on our own and then get to a place later on where we would even feel good about playing any of our dad's music live, which, which we do now with a great show called Ricky Nelson Remembered. It's just one of the things that we do. It's our way of kind of staying in touch with him and our roots. Uh, but, you know, it was nice to actually – kind of stand on our own feet, I, I can definitely say that that uh, I, I if I had a nickel for every time somebody made it hard on us and then turned and said, I just wanted to be one of those guys that shows you how the real world works. Like, <laughs> brother, you know, let me give you the real world. For me, here's my real world. It, it's finding out your dad passed away in an airplane accident before they even tell the family. And then the media goes to town on a story about you know, something like cocaine freebasing, then when they prove that that was false, the damage has been done and nobody apologizes. So that's my reality, not to get all dark, but it's kind of like for every blessing, you know, there's also another side of that coin, mm-hmm. just like there is with everybody, you know? Uh, Gunner and I have realized that just a lot in life that we have, uh, there are no accidents that uh, don't serve to make you uh, a better person, or at least a bigger person, and build character. But we've definitely had some pretty huge character moments. I'll tell you that.
1: Now, of course, you grew up in a family that had had success in music and in television and all of that. But but even with that, thirty years ago, were were you and Gunner prepared for the incredible level of success and exposure that came with After the Rain?
0: I think we're as a, a, as prepared as anybody could possibly be. Or walking out on stage and it sounding like a jet engine coming at you from all the girls screaming. I mean, there's really nothing you can really prepare for that kind of energy coming at you. And I will say, though, that I think our heads were in the right places because, you know, we grew up with our father and, you know, everybody on the Harmon side of the family, whatever. It's just it's kind of like it was our job. That's what we were supposed to do. But I think the biggest shock to me was. The week before we released our, our first single, Love and Affection, Gunner and I went to a mall down the street from where we lived called the Sherman Oaks Galleria. And, you know, I think I had to buy socks and underwear or something like that and couldn't get anybody to, you know, tell me where the, the clothes were or whatever. And just, it was not a big deal. It was just, you know, nobody cared. And the next week we had released our single and we had an in store record signing thing at the Sam Goody record store that was in the mall. And uh, I remember getting to this, this mall, and the person that was there to meet us at the elevator looked really terrified. And I said, what's going on? And he said, you have no idea how many people are in there. And I'm laughing, kind of going, yeah, I saw that movie. This is Spinal Tap. I'm sure there's like, <laughs> what, five people there or whatever. And uh, we went up in the elevator, and the door opened, and this jet engine came at us. And it, the whole mall, three levels of the mall were filled with girls screaming. And um, that's kind of when I looked at my brother, and I said, Oh, this is a different world. And um, it, it you're right. It kind of felt like it happened overnight, but it was years and years of that. It's just that I think that from the way that Gunnar and I presented what we were doing, uh, our our sound, the fact that we always kind of had a little bit of a sense of humor in what we did, and it was all about singing. And you know, we were kind of like, I think, the opposite of what was happening a lot at the time. You know, there was definitely rock and roll energy in it, but it was more of a positive type of thing. You know, it was not a black leather and spill billi- beer on your girlfriend's kind of music. It was more of like a, a hard folk, Laurel Canyon inspired kind of thing with just heavier guitars, almost like almost like the Stone Canyon band that our dad did, you know, just with a different presentation. Of course, the long hair. We looked like hot Swedish chicks. It just worked. <laughs> and, you know, and it was a lot of fun. And I got to tell you, I'm really glad that we got to experience that when we were, you know, 22 years old, like you should.
1: Uh, speaking of After the Rain 30th anniversary and uh, available right now for fans, a remastered version of the album on vinyl.
0: That is true. We did a 180-gram vinyl remaster of it. I got a chance. I've always been the guy that has sequenced and and uh, supervised at least the mastering and the EQs of the, the albums that we've put out. And I was always really unhappy, to be honest with you, with the final product of the After the Rain album. Not that it didn't sell millions of copies, which is great. It's just... I was missing something sonically in the bottom end, you know, the low end just wasn't where it was when I heard it on the big speakers. And the problem was they had lost with all the sales of the record company through the years, through decades, the master tapes for the After the Rain album, the unecued master tape. And you have to have that in order to remaster it. Like when you see a remastered thing, you have to have that source tape. So I kind of had written it off and it was a real it was a real whole in my heart and i got a phone call uh from the record company archives saying hey we have some good news for you i guess they had i don't know if you heard there was a big fire in north hollywood where right. a warehouse had destroyed a lot of a lot of masters and our name was on the list or whatever but they said in, in us looking for the assets we found your unecued master tape in the wrong box it had been mislabeled all these years and put into the wrong box and uh that day I made an appointment and uh, went in and remastered the album. So I'm so happy with the way that it sounds now. It sounds exactly like when we were created, just kind of bigger, you know, 30 years of technology has brought life back to it. And so when people hear it on satellite radio or on, on terrestrial radio now, or even on the vinyl, it sounds the way that I envisioned it. And I'm very pleased with it.
1: Your dad for, for quite a period of time had more hits than anybody not named Elvis here in the United States. But I always felt like maybe because of the television show that he didn't get the credit or the respect that he deserved him. Am, am I off on that?
0: No, not at all. As a matter of fact, there was real proof of that. Um, he always used to, you know, he had a great attitude with it. He said, hey, you know, life is a series of comebacks. But the man sold half a billion singles in his career and was never nominated for a Grammy. So there was a definite thing in there with the industry. You know, he was impossibly good-looking. He oozed charisma. And he was genuinely really good at what he did. I mean, he was all about music. He just happened to have a TV show that was a hit. And people used to have to tune into it to see him play. But if you listen to those early records, I'm talking like the Burnett Brothers stuff, like, you know, Believe What You Say, It's Late, all that early rockabilly stuff. It's 100% genuine, straight up. Rockabilly, just like, you know, the Carl Perkins and Elvis and Jerry Lee and Roy Orbison and Little Richard. It was it was that level or better. And I always thought that maybe it had something to do with, you know, the made for TV thing. You know, of course he spiked the ball at the garden party years after that when he went to an oldie show and and they boot him off the stage for looking different. He wrote that song and had a big hit with it. But it was when he toured over in Europe where they didn't get the Ozzy and Harriet show. And he was revered like Elvis and Jerry Lee and Roy Orbison. I mean, he was, and that was the difference. The difference was there was no kind of made for TV stigma. So you're a hundred percent correct on that. And when Gunnar and I talked to people that are from England, I mean, I, I got a chance, thank God to talk to Paul McCartney before his show. And he was a straight up Ricky Nelson fan, no stigma, no anything. He said he was, he was right there with Elvis for us. And you know, Sir Paul was going to produce a, a record on our father when he passed away. It never happened, and it was really sad. And it was one of those moments where I got a chance to give him a demo version of our dad singing "The Last Year he Was Alive" one after '909, the Beatles cut, mm. and see see Paul McCartney turn into a 12 year old. And he was so thrilled to get that. Like, uh, it was, couldn't he couldn't have been kinder to me. But it's really neat to see that that the people that have that love for music and for their heroes, it never goes away.
1: And He was such a part of that Southern California, the Laurel Canyon sound as well, particularly with the Stone Canyon Band. I mean, just a tremendous musicianship, but but great music. And and uh, I, I'll tell you a little story. Um, back not long, uh, just a few months before he passed away, imc to show that your dad did up here in Maine, and wow. it was and it was an oh, it was a tough day for him. It was hotter than blazes. Their bus had broken down along the way and uh you know he but he could not have been nicer and i was telling him how much i had enjoyed his album uh they had done a couple years earlier on capital playing to win which i I was shocked wasn't a a bigger hit i thought it was great music and i remember him saying to me that yeah that was great and i've got some some more coming but people mostly want to hear traveling man and hello mary lou and i thought man (laughs) uh, that's the cruelties of the music business that that So many people missed out on, I think, some of your dad's very best music.
0: You know, I think so. Gunner and I have always kind of taken a look at what he did with the Stone Canyon Band because we were there. I mean, he moved our cribs out of the way to to rehearse his band at our nursery. So for us, you know, it was very normal to have people show up at the house. I mean, George Harrison lived next door, and he would be in the kitchen when we got up in the morning. And, you know, Bob Dylan would show up or whatever. So there was always music and musicians around. But when he put that band together, it was after the Ozzy and Harry show had ended. He had kind of retired, but he found a real love of that type of music. And again, I think it was a friendship with Dylan and people like that, where he realized that he'd come off of doing a couple of straight up country records. Uh, Nashville wouldn't let him in because, you know, that's Ricky Nelson. That's that pop star guy. And they kicked him out basically. And, so he said, OK, well, I'm going to do it my way. And he turned up the guitars a little bit and started writing these great songs. And there's one album in particular that living here in, in Nashville, I live in Franklin, Tennessee. It's about 20 minutes south of Nashville. I have more of the great musicians. I'm talking uh, people I, that have played on more hit records. I bet we're
1: talking yeah. Memphis Sessions, right?
0: No, no, no. Oh, I, no. That was different. No, it was an album actually before that. It was the album just before Garden Party. It was called Rudy the Fifth. Oh,
1: yes. and, yeah.
0: And it was the quintessential stone canyon band mm. country rock album and i have more hot national musicians citing that as being the inspiration for them playing it all they said that was it for them and we're going to definitely re-release that album I'm, I'm looking forward to that 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 in particular is still my favorite so if you get a chance any listeners out there rudy the fifth by rick nelson i think they've done it as a twofer on CDs, you can find it with Garden Party and Rudy the Fifth, and it's, it's definitely worth it.
1: We're talking with Matthew Nelson. I want to mention uh, both you and Gunner are active uh, uh, online with a wonderful website, MatthewAndGunnarNelson.com, and you're both involved uh, doing some really cool stuff for fans through Cameo.
0: Yeah, the Cameo thing has been great. It's uh, this thing where people can reach out and request uh, a song. Or just a visit or a shout-out or whatever. I mean, a lot of these people, you know, actors do it and musicians do it, and they don't really care about it. Gunner and I are the kind of guys that, like, we'll set up, and and, and uh, right now we're doing individual cameos because people are sensitive. Obviously, it's tough for everybody financially. But we, we do it to where, you know, like yesterday I had somebody say, hey, you know, I'm just kind of having a blue moment. Can you play your song after the rain for me and give me a shout-out? and I spent 10 minutes on the phone kind of having a one-way conversation recording this thing and me playing an acoustic version of, of our song After the Rain, and um, I just got a, a response back from this person with these kind of like tear emojis saying, thank you so much. I really needed that, and it was really fun, and I love doing stuff like that. That, that is one thing that's good about technology. I'm not going to take away from the fact that I really miss playing live concerts. Gunner and I have the first Two shows our christmas shows are playing in uh got one in florida and one in north carolina in a couple of weeks but we had a full schedule all year just like everybody did and it just got moved so mostly mostly rescheduled you know for a carbon copy for next year but uh we really miss playing live i'll tell you but cameo helps
1: and you're doing uh, the christmas with the nelson show did i see you're doing a, a virtual version of that too that fans can check into
0: yeah, we are. Check into the, the the website because it'll tell you. I believe it's on the first that we're doing it. Uh, um, you can log on. It's a company uh, that does these virtual concerts called Meat Hook, and I know it's an interesting name M E E T <laughs> Hook. And um, basically, Gunner and I have done a, a few of these these virtual concerts. You know, people will write in in real time and we'll take requests or whatever. But we're doing uh, a cut down version of a Christmas show that we've been doing now for five years. And Gunner and I. Always had a dream of doing a Christmas album. Uh, our dad never got a chance to. He did t- a couple of great Christmas singles. But he never did a whole album like Elvis did or whatever. And Gunner and I started on a Christmas album. Wound up doing a double album, a double Christmas CD, and uh, we went and put a live show together for it. And that I think is the worst part about this whole thing. Is I always love the last month of the year because where everybody usually in my business is staying home. We're out performing for people and capping off their year, and we put together just a fantastic Christmas show. And um, we're going to get to do this uh, on online now. People can buy kind of a, a ticket, and if they want to get a ticket and a T-shirt package, they can do it. So it's almost like being at a venue. You just uh, don't have to get out of your pajamas.
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, you can get more information by going to the website, <laughs> MatthewAndGunnerNelson.com. Matthew, you guys sound better than ever today. Uh, I've enjoyed your music for, well, for 30 years now. And it's great to get the opportunity to talk with you about uh, your music and, and that of your dad as well.
0: I really appreciate that. And I especially wanted to say this, too. You know, when you said something in uh, a little bit ago, you said your dad showed up, his bus had broke down, but he was just such a nice guy. You really warmed my heart with that, because I got to say that I never saw my dad ever have a celebrity moment. You know, he never acted like he was better than anybody else. He was just a genuinely sweet human being. And um, I think that was the greatest lesson that uh, that we've gotten from from our family in general. You know, my grandparents were like that. You know, the Harmons are like that. And uh, I I think that that's the greatest legacy and hopefully something that uh, the gunner and I have passed on. You know, we've we've always used to uh, and still intend to stay and meet everybody that wanted to meet us after shows and shake hands and take pictures and hugs and all this stuff. It's an interesting new era that we're going to have to kind of navigate. But um, all I can say is that people have really stood by our family for years and years. And hopefully that uh, that heart is continuing with uh, with the further generations of the family. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, my pleasure indeed. And we wish you well, uh, both you and Gunnar. Stay safe and hopefully we'll connect with you again down the road.
0: I sure hope so. You'll be the first to get our uh, firstborn son's album.
1: There you go. <laughs> that sounds great. Matthew, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, too. You have a great day.
1: Matthew Nelson talking with us here on Downtown, uh, their website, MatthewandGunnerNelson.com. Our thanks to him. Thanks to the wonderful John Biner too, his book entitled Five Minutes, Mr. Biner, And thank you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball and we'll see you next time, right here on Downtown.